I think during this time of the multiple pandemics that we've been experiencing, we are realizing that the system is broken. The system that is built in white supremacy and hatred and capitalism is broken. And working in isolation only fuels that current system. So the need for us to pull together and work in solidarity across all groups is critically important. And that is why what happens to any of our Asian brothers and sisters should matter to us. And what matters, what happens to other subgroups, other groups like African-Americans, Latinos, it can easily happen to any of us. And that's why we always have to be in solidarity, even though they will find ways to cleave us apart. Welcome to the fourth installment of the Chapters podcast series. I'm your host, John Barrett Ingalls. In our Chapters series, we focus on stories surrounding the exclusion forced removal, and internment of Japanese Americans. But with all that is happening in our country right now, in this historic moment ripe with the potential for change and growth, we are expanding our scope and amplifying the voices of organizations and individuals who are trying to make a difference, who are standing at the convergence of art, education, and social justice. With this series, we honor those who have struggled and suffered in the past and question, how are we still here? How have we not come any further than this? Miko Lee is the Director of Programs at Asian Americans for Civil Rights and Equality and Lead Producer for Apex Express on KPFA Radio. The, the Civil Liberties Project is actually through Apex Express, which is a radio show on KPFA. And Apex Express is a collective of Asian American Pacific Islander radio folks that want to tell progressive stories about our community. There are a lot of folks that banded together and said, Pacific Radio, we want shows that are created by and for BIPOC folks. And so it basically every at, at KPFA, which is the Berkeley version, Berkeley station and the original station of Pacifica Radio, essentially every weeknight at 7 p.m. is a different BIPOC show. So there's an indigenous one, there's Ladaza, there's an African-American one, and we are the Asian Pacific Islander one called Apex Express. Thursday nights at 7 o'clock. It's a collective of folks that run Apex, and I do a show specifically with my daughter. We look at intergenerational issues and the impacts. And, and also, I, I will honestly say that started with my, my daughter saying to me, Mom, what does old Twitter say today? <laughs> and so we would joke about, from our different perspectives, what we were seeing and how, and how um, what was the perspective. And so that's actually how it started. So I was really inspired by an amazing organization called Pseudo for Solidarity that was doing this work with Japanese American elders that are formerly incarcerated, like 80 and 90 year olds that were going down to the detention centers in Texas where they were held and protesting the fact that migrant kids were being held at those same centers. So in Crystal City, Texas, this center held Geronimo, and then it held incarcerated Japanese Americans during World War II, and then they were refurbishing it, you know, to hold uh, immigrant kids. And the elders said, no, never again. We cannot let this happen. So my daughter, Jolene, and I were all set to get on the bus and go down to Crystal City, and all of these things happened. Um, we ended up not being able to go, but the elders just inspired by 
you know, I want to be old and feisty like that <laughs> to be 80 and 90 year old and still get on that bus and saying never again. Number one, just protesting that their pain that they went through and that one facility specifically held incarcerated Japanese Latin Americans, which is one of the lesser told stories about the incarceration, the over 3000 Japanese Latin Americans that were kidnapped from their homes um, in Peru, in Panama, you know, it is just such a horrific story. And then they were incarcerated specifically at Crystal City, which was not, which, which is one of the federal detention camps. And they were held there. And then when, when the, you know, when the release happened and Japanese Americans were allowed to go home, they didn't have a home to go to because they couldn't go back to their Latin American countries of which they had been disowned. They were not considered American citizens. So they're saying, what, now what? Um, and those folks also did not get reparations. They did not get the $20,000 and the apology. Many, many fights later, some folks got $5,000 and a kind of apology. Um, and then some folks fought it all the way to the United Nations. Um, and of course they won their case, um, but still there was not an official apology to the Japanese Latin Americans and never by the Latin American governments that made this happen, right? And it was a prisoner for exchange program. So my daughter and I were inspired by these stories of these elders and working on the on behalf of immigrant kids. They were able to not just tell the pain of their stories, but also incorporate it in this way that at the end of each of their protests, led by the amazing psychologist, Dr. Satsuki Ina, they held healing circles where after they would protest, they would sit in a circle together and share what they were going through so that they weren't re-traumatizing themselves and that they could be able to continue to do this work. So there's so much beautiful learnings there. So initially this whole never again project that my daughter and I did was honoring these elders, honoring this deep commitment toward change and over multiple generations. So that's how it got started. So we ended up doing uh, multiple, we did seven different episodes. We have a study guide and we're working on a website that we will be unveiling soon. Um, but each of the episodes are utilizing our um, back and forth, looking at generations and our approach. So we did a whole series of different um uh, different episodes, you know, the missing in as Helen Zia always talks about what are the MIH, the missing in history stories. So we try and tell some of those missing in history stories. We told we did an episode about women in the camps because there are not that many stories that are specifically focused on the really difficult experiences that some of the women had to go through, like even just going to the bathroom at night in those latrines and how scary that could be and what was reporting looking like when it was potentially a guard or a relative or a neighbor there were not systems set up for the women in those camps it was very dangerous um we looked at intergenerational trauma and healing and the processes of that and we were able to talk to people like dr satsuki ina who made an amazing film called children from the camps about pulling together, you know, Sansei folks to be able to talk about what their experiences were like. Um, we talked about reparations with uh, John Tataki, who wrote an amazing book on this. 
And we are actually in the process right now of developing a workshop with Black Lives Matter at school, looking at reparations from the Japanese American internment and how that can be applied to current reparations movements with, with African American and indigenous folks. And we know some of that work has already been going down, like the Sudo for Solidarity in Chicago worked really closely with Black Lives Matter to be able to get a reparations passed for the first one in the country for Black folks in Chicago. So we were able to cover a story on reparations. So we were really just, we wanted to do stories that we felt uh, looked at the history, looked at the wrongs, the never agains in our history, and how we can apply them to what is happening now and how we can take action and utilize that harmful history to be able to learn a lesson and move forward. So Apex Express is part of a larger network, which is called ACRE, which is Asian Americans for Civil Rights and Equality. And that's a network of 11 different AAPI progressive groups, um, including Chinese for Affirmative Action, which is actually the grandmother of all of our groups. So Chinese for Affirmative Action started over 50 years ago, and it started really in the time when um, there was so much going on in our country, and it was folks saying fighting for ethnic studies, fighting for civil rights, fighting for free speech, for accessibility, for all of these issues to make sure that people had equal access. And that's how Chinese for Affirmative Action was born by students saying, we believe that affirmative action is a critical component to being an American and what an American stands for. So civil rights was um, a core to the issue for Chinese for Affirmative Action. And while the organization was founded mostly by Chinese Americans, it quickly grew to be cross-racial in terms of different kinds of Asian ethnicities. Annie Lee is the Director of Policy for Chinese for Affirmative Action. As a former U.S. history teacher, Annie shares a brief history of Chinese Americans and how their story connects with other marginalized groups and the struggles they have faced as they fight for equity in this country. The first big wave of Chinese people coming to the United States came during the gold rush. And that was not just a big influx of Chinese people, but a big influx from around the world because gold was discovered in California and folks wanted to come. Allegedly, you could pick up gold in just any old river in California. And so scores and scores of people from around the world, including from China, came to California and you could immediately start to see race play into how people were stratified in society and where people were allowed to live and just the treatment of different people, um, including then folks from China. Chinese, like many other people, remained in California after the gold rush boom. And as, as nativism started to grow in the United States towards the end of the 1800s, you can start to see that reflected in our laws. And many people cite the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, but actually the Page Act of 1875 first prohibited the entry of Chinese women. 
And uh, you can also see not just a racial element to our history, but a gendered element. And the idea that if you don't allow Chinese women over, then Chinese people can't be here, they can't have families, they cannot procreate and settle down and have roots here. Um, and that was that was why you know the Page Act was passed and then followed by the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which suspended Chinese immigration and declared Chinese immigrants ineligible for naturalization. You can see it in the history of San Francisco, which is my hometown, but um, it happens to many, many minority groups, including Jews in the Lower East Side in New York. But the ghettoization and like a specific part of the community where people can live. And so that happens in Chinatown during the earthquake and, and the fires, which really um, destroyed the city in 1906. You could also see the implications of just the second class nature of Chinese in San Francisco. But actually, one thing that I really want to point out is that during the late 1800s, like during this history of oppressing Chinese and Chinese Americans, there was also resistance. And I think that this history so beautifully um, ties in all of the accomplishments and sacrifice of the Black community. So as a U.S. history teacher, I think Reconstruction is one of the most important times in U.S. history. And during that time, the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments pass, and the 14th amendment includes a couple key elements, uh, including birthright citizenship, because African-Americans were not considered citizens at the time, and the idea of equal protection. And so those were enshrined in the 14th Amendment. But re what really gave those principles meat were two cases brought by Chinese people. Yik Wo is an enormously important case in American history in which um, there was a race-neutral law in San Francisco about laundromats. And so it didn't single out Chinese people, but it was only applied against Chinese laundries and penalizing them. That case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court found that that violated equal protection under the 14th Amendment. And so much of our equal protection law derives from this case, um, which is about selective enforcement of a racially neutral law. And so you can see Black and Asian communities like working together to advance civil rights for everyone. Then the other case I want to highlight is the Wong Ar Kim case, which establishes birthright citizenship that was already in the 14th Amendment. But when um, you had this man, Wong Kim Ark, who was born in San Francisco to parents who were Chinese citizens or Chinese nationals. And then he left and wanted to come back and folks wouldn't allow him. The court found that actually, no, he was born in San Francisco, which means that he is a U.S. citizen. Um, and that case is hugely influential for millions of Americans today, including myself. I was born to parents who um, I'm not even sure they naturalized um, by the time I was born in San Francisco, but um, it gives that builds on the 14th Amendment, which again was, was a result of the Civil War. There was a moment where Asian Americans were pitted against each other in 1942, mm -hmm. uh, Executive Order 9066 was passed. 120,000 Japanese Americans were incarcerated, abandoning everything that they had built here. And then a year later, the Chinese Exclusion Act ended with the Magnuson Act, which uh, allowed for Chinese to come to the United States to work here um, in small numbers, but because China was our ally in World War II. So you have one subgroup incarcerated, and then we're opening the door for the other, and then, and then switching again, depending on what 
what America needed at that time. Correct. And there were Chinese Americans um, during World War II that would wear pins that said, like, I'm not Japanese and trying to distinguish themselves and and spare themselves the horrible treatment that Japanese Americans were experiencing at the time. But I think that the case of Vincent Chin explains precisely why we need to stand together with other Asian American subgroups. Vincent Chin, as folks may know, um, was a Chinese American in Detroit and out uh, celebrating his bachelorhood the day before his wedding uh, when two white uh, auto workers, thinking that he was Japanese because Japanese cars were doing very well in the 80s and American manufacturing was on the decline, um, saw Vincent Shin at this bar at his bachelor party and thought he was Japanese and beat him to death. And it was a heinous, horrible crime. And I think it goes to show that what happens and how one one subgroup of Asian Americans is treated matters, both because it in and of itself is immoral and unethical, but also because it is a, a canary in coal mine for the rest of us. Um, and that's why we have to be very, very conscious about things like anti-China rhetoric. You know, folks cannot tell if you're Korean American, Japanese American, Chinese American, and I think the same goes for our South Asian brothers and sisters. After 9-11, people, the first victim uh, of, of hate and violence after 9-11 was a sick man who is not Muslim, but people do not know. And frankly, some of them do not care. And that is why what happens to any of our Asian brothers and sisters should matter to us. And what matters, what happens to other subgroups, other groups like African-Americans, Latinos, it can easily happen to any of us. And that's why we always have to be in solidarity, even though they will find ways to cleave us apart. Sometimes it's language. Sometimes it's immigration status. They will, the powers that be will try to separate us because we have power in numbers and because our solidarity is a threat to them. Our conversation took place right before the midterm elections in 2022. As mailers were bombarding voters regarding issues and candidates, one in particular was alarming. Sent from the America First Legal Foundation, this flyer pitted white and Asian against black and Mexican. This is not a new tactic to subvert solidarity. It works to pit groups against each other. That is how power remains concentrated in the hands of the white men that currently hold it. And, and it is a tried and true method. Um, and it is also not new to use Asian Americans as a wedge. Um, the whole concept of a model minority uh, lifted up after the civil rights movement um, as a reactionary force to curtail the rights that minority groups were making. It was very easy to then just pick off one group and say, this group is great and we every other minority group should be like Asian Americans. Um, and you know, if they can make it here, why can't everybody? And if you can't, it must be something inherent about you. Um, and, and that has been so pernicious, um, not only for all of America, but for Asian Americans in particular. I think, I think we have now talked about this extensively, but it bears repeating all the time because new mailers like that come out all the time that try to associate Asian Americans and whiteness and make Asian Americans 
quote unquote, honorary whites. But that whole tactic is really a type of white supremacy in and of itself. It belies the vast diversity within the Asian American population, which Yes, there are Asian American subgroups that have and make a lot of money. And there are also Asian American subgroups that are struggling, deeply, deeply struggling economically. Um, and to conflate all of that um, and say that, you know, we're we're successful is just not true. Um, but also we cannot be used as a wedge to pin down and criticize other minority groups, particularly African-Americans. It is so easy to use Asian-Americans as this wedge, as we've just seen in the Supreme Court this week, when the Supreme Court heard the two uh, affirmative action cases at Harvard and UNC, I think it's why it's so important that Asian American students and um, activists were out there on the court steps in solidarity with black and brown students saying that we support affirmative action and we are beneficiaries of affirmative action. And for us, race conscious admissions is important because taking away that erases so much of our identity. We really need to stand in solidarity with each other and not allow Asian Americans to be picked off and used in this way. It is harmful for other communities of color. It's harmful for us. I think during this time of the multiple pandemics that we've been experiencing, we are realizing that the system is broken. The system that is built in white supremacy and hatred and capitalism is broken. And working in isolation, only fuels that current system. So the need for us to pull together and work in solidarity across all groups is critically important. And we're seeing that, I mean, we've seen that in the third world liberation movement that happened, you know, in the 60s and 70s, and we're seeing kind of a resurgence of that, recognizing that individual uh, approaches to civil rights are critical. So Black Lives Matter as its own movement is really important. And, you know, Latinx community and indigenous communities working together um, is critically important and working across solidarity movement building is also important. So it cannot be this, we have this one way, we're working in isolation, like just Chinese American or just, you know, Mexican, but it has to be this broad-based approach. And so ACRE is about broad-based Asian American Pacific Islander support, and it is about working in solidarity with other ethnic groups so that, and not just ethnic, but class groups that are facing these systems of oppression and trying to work in a way that we can envision a new world. Let's dive a little deeper into the work these two women are doing for equity and civil rights and the hope they have for the future. I have two hats. <laughs> One, I am the lead producer for Apex Express, and the other is I'm actually the director of programs for all of Acre. Around the 2000s, I believe, a bunch of different groups got together to really talk about marriage equality and how marriage equality was a critical component to everybody having access. And in this case, equal access to love. Who can fight that? And in that way, multiple groups came together, including an organization that's now known as Lavender Phoenix, but at the time started out as API Equality and that was for queer and trans AAPI folks. Another organization called the Network for Religion and Justice, which is queer and trans AAPI folks in the spirituality community. 
Um, so a few of these different groups came together and said, we want to uh, make sure that love is love and that anybody can get married. From that grew, that was the start of this network called ACRE, Asian Americans for Civil Rights and Equality. And then additional groups started to come to that. Um, groups including Asian Prisoner Support Committee that uh, supports incarcerated and formerly incarcerated AAPI folks and groups like HIP, Hmong Innovating Politics, which is supporting Southeast Asian folks, Asian Refugees United, which is supporting uh, folks impacted by displacement, Vietnamese folks and Bhutanese folks, and Viet Unity, a group that's also supporting uh, folks from the Vietnamese diaspora, and, and others, and ASATA, Association of South Asians Taking Action. Each of these groups are all committed to social change through Asian Americans. One of my big responsibilities as the director of policy at CAA is um, contributing to our work at Stop API Hate. So Stop API Hate is a national coalition founded by CAA, as well as API Equity Alliance in LA and the Asian American Studies Department at uh, San Francisco State University. And so as part of our Stop API Hate work, uh, we carried a huge legislative package last year called No Place for Hate California, which included three bills and two budget requests to try to take um, a public health and civil rights approach to confronting the uptick in anti-API hate incidents that we were receiving. Since we were founded in March 2020, we've received um, over 11,400 reports of hate against AAPIs from across the nation. The vast majority of these are not crimes. The vast majority is verbal harassment, often by a stranger, often in public, so a sidewalk, a store, um, a place that's open to the public transit. It's usually a racialized or sexualized comment slur. Um, and just because it's not a crime does not mean that it is not deeply impactful to the person who has been harmed. Um, but it gets to my larger point, which is the way we treat each other is so important because these things are not crimes. You cannot prosecute this. Uh, you cannot call the police about someone calling you this this name like as you were crossing the street. It doesn't work. Um, but the way in which we view each other and the way in which we treat each other, to me, that's the heart of what is at like anti-AAPI hate. And that is inflamed by things like political rhetoric that blames China or Chinese people for COVID, that blame us for economic downturns, that blame us for um, espionage, accusing us of you know working for the Chinese Communist Party. Like all of that political rhetoric seeps into the way we perceive each other and the way we treat each other. Um, and it also means that the remedies to anti-AAPI hate has to not be criminal because none of this stuff falls within the criminal legal system, but has to be something else. How do we get at improving the way we treat each other, improving the way we think about each other and and being like upfront and honest, but um, how do we build community essentially? And that stuff is so much harder than passing any law, than, than you know, writing a bill, just, it, it is the way in which we live. That is what we are trying to change. There is so much ignorance. And no matter what, the essence of all of us is the story of who we are. And the story of who we are is all connected to our heritage and our culture. And that can be, you know, hyphen American. I mean, almost everybody is 
except if you're indigenous, you're slash American. Um, and so I, I think that there, it's not this parsing of the two, it's the yes and, it's the theater improv thing, the yes and. We are all a part of our culture and identity. I hope that we can have a sense of pride of that. The commonality that everybody has is they want their kids to be happy and healthy. They want to have a roof over their head. They want to, you know, be able to gather with friends. You know, it's like these basic human rights that all of us share. Um, I think that's it. It's the basic humanity of who we are. The fact that so many during the incarceration, Japanese Americans were told to, you know, burn everything that was that had Japanese writing on it that you know was even including their family photos their old kimonos like their teapots all of these things they were told to eliminate that that's the system right the system wants to oppress people to be able to look like one bland uh you know blank piece of paper that the system can put stamps on of ways they want things to be the way for each of us to fight back about that system is to maintain our sense of who we are, whatever that means, whether that's, you know, your gender association, whether that's your ethnicity, whether that's your religion, whatever. That's the part that makes us who we are. And that's the parts that's essential. And so for me, the civil liberties project that we did never again, each of those was just telling somebody's story. So whether that was the story, you know, of of Sita Bamahuk, who is mixed Colombian and Japanese American and, and an artist and telling the stories of the incarceration through art. She did this amazing project where she got 300 pounds of sand from Thule Lake and installed it in a museum so that people could understand the visceral quality of what it like to have all that sand in your face and i went to manzanar this last summer for the first time and wow you know it to be in that space to feel that kind of the mountains are all around you you're in this you know they're buildings but they're you could see through the slats and it's this deceptive thing because the mountains are gorgeous so you're looking through you see these great but then the sand is like hitting you in the face it is so 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 hot you know there was not access to outside of your people and yet still in that moment of being incarcerated at manzanar people got together and they in their off time they built a pond in the middle of a desert so that they could have something to look at, so that they could have a moment of beauty, so that they could have a place of which they could gather around and tell their stories to maintain their identity. So each of these is about people, it's about their stories, it's about how we come together, it's about how we move through and move forward. We want to thank Miko Lee and Annie Lee for their passion, their work, and their knowledge. For more information, visit aacre.org and caasf.org. Chapters podcast was produced by Past Forward and made possible with support from Chapman University and California Civil Liberties Public Education Program, a state-funded grant project of the California State Library. For more information, visit pastforward.org, chapman.edu, and library.ca.gov.